So here's the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you this morning. Um, Happy Sunday. Today, uh, it is a joy to be gathering with you and an honor to be preaching God's word for us from Luke chapter seven. We come to a really beautiful story. Uh, Sorry, I didn't sound check earlier, so I'll give Tim a few seconds. Thanks, Tim, you're great. Um, Today, we're in a wonderful passage, Luke chapter seven. Um, It gives us a beautiful picture of Jesus's heart for sinners and sufferers. Uh, And I'm eager to look into what this passage has for us this morning. In Dodds' sermon last week, um, if you were here, Dodds uh, pointed out to us that Jesus demonstrates what it looks like to interrupt the cycle of vengeance and sin. It's the passage where Jesus tells his followers to turn the other cheek, to to be quick to forgive uh, rather than to judge. Dodds talked about what it means to be agents of reconciliation in the world, agents of love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, the fruits of the spirit through real, costly, sacrificial sacrificial forgiveness and love. Uh, It was a really empowering message. If you didn't listen to it, I recommend that you go back and and listen to to Dodds' sermon from last week. But today we come to a passage that continues in a similar vein. Jesus draws near to a woman who appears to be deeply moved and demonstrating, uh, 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 Jesus is demonstrating this forgiveness and love that he has been talking about this whole time in a way that invites us to do the same. And I think 
that as I begin at the outset, I want to acknowledge that I think that this message is particularly critical for us in today's world. We're in an age, as many people have said, as I've said a number of times in sermons already, we're in an age of increased cultural polarization. Right? It seems as though we're getting further and further apart, that it's becoming more and more difficult to listen to one another, to speak with one another about things uh, uh, about which we disagree. I think it's helpful to see this through the lens of judgmentalism. I would say increasing cultural polarization could be understood as increasing cultural judgmentalism. Um, consider uh, what the most frequent message we get from many of the news sources or media sources that we get is it's us versus them. Um, we're invited, it's modeled for us that we should have an opinion about everything. Um, that once we hear about a piece of news, we have to decide whether that person is us or them. And we establish the camp that we're in, uh, staying with people who are like us and pushing others away. Our passage, I think, digs right at the heart of this issue. As Jesus once again teaches about who he is and what he's come to do, we're going to look at a few things this passage has for us. But the question I want to open with, the question that I really came away from my study with, and what I want to ask you at the beginning is this. Am I living in a way that contributes to division and isolation? Or am I alleviating it? Are you living in your relationships in a way that contributes to division and the isolation of others? Or are you alleviating this division and isolation? Do you see yourself and your life in this world as a constant battle between us versus them with the constant need to look out for, to call out, to reinforce boundaries between you and the bad guys? Or do you see yourself as an ambassador sent across those lines to them with message of love and mercy? and reconciliation. I have three things for us this morning as we look at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Uh, here's how I want to approach this. As I was preparing, I came face to face with really the issue of suffering. What does it mean? How does Jesus deal with suffering? And I'll explain this as we go through, but here's what I want to look at. First, we'll look at the antidote to suffering. Second, the accelerant of suffering. And third, the blessing of suffering. So let's look at the first thing the antidote to suffering. Let's look starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him and Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Pause there. So in this passage, we're brought into the house of a Pharisee named Simon, when a woman who's a notorious sinner approaches Jesus with an alabaster flask of ointment. She's probably planning to anoint Jesus's head with this ointment, which would have been the custom at this time. Uh, but at this, as she's standing behind him, she's overwhelmed with emotion. She begins to weep so much. Uh, the word there, when Jesus's feet get wet, is a word for rain falling. And so there's so much that she gets Jesus's feet wet with her tears and she doesn't have a rag with her. So she unties her hair and wipes off his feet and then anoints his feet with the ointment instead. And now there's detail that I want to point out for clarity's sake at the outset, uh, moments like this wouldn't have been unusual in Jesus's ministry. 
There's many times that they were at feasts or banquets or dinners uh, that Jesus would have been invited to. Uh, after having been invited to teach in synagogues, that would have been a common time to have like a community meal um, where Jesus would have been an honored guest. And it would be common at a meal as an honored guest to have someone anoint your head with oil or to wash your feet for you. Um, oftentimes this would have been done by servant servants uh, rather than the host himself, and often those servants were women. And so the fact that a woman is coming to wash Jesus's feet at a banquet like this isn't actually altogether unusual. One of the reasons I say that is because there's another story told in the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, which comes at the end of the ministry of Jesus, right before his uh, crucifixion, where we're told that Mary Magdalene does something similar to this woman. She comes and she pours out this very precious ointment on Jesus's head. And in that scene, which is different from this. These are two separate stories. In that scene, the focus is on uh, the disciples being very disgruntled that Mary has wasted this precious ointment. This scene focuses on something different. She's anointing this woman, who's a sinner, is anointing Jesus's feet. And instead of the disciples being disgruntled about the waste of money, um, it's the Pharisees who aren't concerned about money. They're concerned that Jesus is associating with a sinner. And so I wanted to put that by way of clarification. If you're familiar with the Bible, this is a different moment. There are two different times that this happens to Jesus and his ministry. So yes, Jesus is reclining at table here with the Pharisees and we're introduced in verse 37 to the main figure of the story. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was there, went to him. It's interesting that this woman actually says nothing throughout this story. Her actions speak a thousand words, but she's not said to say anything in this passage. She's not a servant of Simon's. She wasn't invited to the meal. We know the reason she's there is because she's learned that Jesus was there. And so she's seeking to come and honor him uh, with this ointment uh, that she has in her alabaster flask. So this was likely, like I said, a, a, a weekly Sabbath meal after Jesus had taught in the synagogue or some banquet like this, where uh, uninvest, uninvited guests would commonly have been welcome to enter these meals. Um, if you were an uninvited guest, you could come to this community banquet and sit uh, towards the wall and listen to the conversation that was happening at the table. So it would have been a common practice. All Luke tells us about this woman is that she's a sinner. And it is unusual that she's there. Luke uses the word behold. He, Look, there's a sinner. He doesn't tell us her exact sin. It's possible that she was a prostitute or an adulteress, which is often suggested and probably true, although it's not certain. What we do know, though, is that her immorality was widely known. This woman would have been a notorious sinner. Um, if you picture, if you ever read The Scarlet Letter, um, this is the Hester Prynne of this story. Um, everybody knows um, that she is a sinner. So all that is to say this, for this woman to enter the home of a Pharisee and to draw near to Jesus would have been an act of, of great courage. Her sin would have been front and center for her, just right here in front of her face at all times. These days, there tends to be a more of a separation between our communities. The people you work with aren't the people you hang out with, aren't the people you go to church, church with. You know, it's, it's easy to kind of we drive, you know, everything in Houston is 20 minute drive away from wherever you're going or wherever you're coming from. And so we, we tend to have kind of a compartmentalized social life in many ways. That would not have been the case here. This is before automobiles. Um, all, all of your life would have taken place in a very small area within walking distance. Picture small town life where everybody knows everything. That's what life would have been like here. So wherever this woman went, 
she would have been recognized, known, and identified with her sin. So, and she evidently knew about Jesus and his teaching and whatever she'd heard about him had caused her to want to come and honor him with this ointment, but she doesn't make it that far. She's standing behind Jesus and she breaks down. We don't know what the dinner conversation would have been. Perhaps Jesus had just said something in the conversation that touched on sin and forgiveness. And this woman broke down in response. Perhaps the woman was thinking about something that Jesus had said before, whether she had heard him say it in a previous lesson or she had heard it from someone else and that she is now face to face with this Jesus and she's broken down with emotion. Regardless of what caused it, she is in tears. And Luke records her behavior in great detail. Virtually every move of this woman is presented. She's standing behind Jesus. She cries so hard that his feet get wet. They're so wet that she lets down her hair, wipes them off. Then she kisses his feet and then she anoints his feet with ointment. She's very meticulous and she's deeply emotional. And here's the thing. This probably would have taken a while for literary scholars. Those of you who are literary scholars, this is the plot, this is the tension building part of the story, right? But before we even get to the conflict in climax of the story, we notice something remarkable. This took a while. Here's Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, perfect in holiness. And what does he do when this notorious sinner comes and touches him? And not just once, but she stays there for this prolonged opportunity to show him honor and worship and devotion. What does Jesus do? He just sits there and receives her worship. Instead of responding as the Pharisees were expecting, Jesus doesn't rebuke this woman. He doesn't push her away. He allows her to draw near and enjoys her presence. I mean, can you imagine what would have been going through this woman's head at this time? Picture being a notorious sinner walking into a church today where you know that everyone knows your sin. You may not need to work hard to picture it. Maybe this is part of your story. But you walk into this church, you know the pastor preaches about grace and forgiveness and all of that, but you also know that what you've done is very wrong. How are you going to be received? Have I gone too far? Beyond the fact that Jesus tells us later on that this woman loves him, we can only speculate what's going through her head. Can you imagine? What was she thinking? What is he gonna do? How am I gonna be received? Is this message of grace that I've heard about for me or have I misunderstood? Am I even doing the right thing? She's standing there with the alabaster flask and breaks. What am I even doing? And what does Jesus do? Nothing. He sits there with her. And why is that? Because she is exactly the kind of person that Jesus has come for. If you got your Bible open, look up at verse 34 just before our passage. It tells us what Jesus is being accused of. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So people are accusing Jesus of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners as though Jesus is doing something wrong. But the story makes it clear here, which will only become clear as we read on, that this is precisely what Jesus meant to do. He's not making a mistake. He's not inconvenienced by the presence of this woman and just tolerating her being there. She is the very reason he has come. 
I don't know where you are today, but I can tell you that wherever you are, whatever distress you're experiencing, Jesus is here for you. Whether you're doing well or whether you're downcast and struggling, whether you've blown it, know this, that Jesus came for you. This is the first thing we see in this passage. Here's a woman who is a picture for us of someone in the midst of deep suffering. In this case, the woman is suffering on account of her own sin and its effects on her relationship. She is a cultural outcast. In other cases in Jesus' ministry, people suffer from various other things, from sickness to disease to demon oppression. But here, in exactly the same way as Jesus does in all of those other cases, what does Jesus do? He draws near to the one suffering. What is the antidote to suffering? It begins with presence. Jesus, bringing the mercy of God to bear in the world, is a friend of sinners. He draws near to sinners. He sits with them. He listens to them. He eats with them. He receives them. It's the first thing that we see. The antidote to suffering is the presence of God. Which brings us to the second key character in this event. Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Verse 40, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Let's stop there. Notice what leads to this question or this thought. Here is a man who has it all. Uh, The Pharisees would have likely been wealthy, um, he had wealth, he had status, he had privilege. And what does, what does Simon the Pharisee do with this woman, with this privilege? He holds her, he pushes her away. Here's a man who has plenty, who's given himself to religious purity, who likely spends his time feeling bad for others who don't have what he has. And on account of this, he is blind to the point that he looks down on the Son of God. And this woman who's in the midst of suffering, instead of being an agent of presence and reconciliation, of walking this woman right up to the mercy of God, which is what the religious leaders were supposed to be doing in the first place. The Pharisee is an agent instead of judgment and isolation. So Simon is probably not literally holding out his arm to hold her at arm's length, but that is what his whole way of seeing the world is doing to her and to those like her. Um, Jesus says, Earlier in his ministry, or in in the book of Matthew, he he gives the illustration of a speck versus a plank. He talks about judgment, and he says, why are you trying to point out the speck in your brother's eye when you can't see that you have a log sticking out of your own eye? The image there is almost humorous, almost comical, that a person is trying to get close to be helpful to others while they're whacking everyone around with a two-by-four. In his judgmentalism, Simon has discounted this woman and pushed her away. And whenever you read a story in the Bible like this, one of the questions that it's appropriate to ask is where are you in this story? Are you a friend of sinners drawing near to the ones who are suffering? Or are you someone who avoids them because they brought it upon themselves? To tell you about the Pharisees, they're popular teachers at this time. Um, Their lessons would have been very practical Um, helpful ways to adhere to the law. Do this, don't do this. Be like this, don't be like that. Um, What initially probably started as a well-meaning attempt on the part of the earlier Pharisees 
to help people follow the law and take sin seriously. The problem is that the Pharisees had by this time constructed a system that had replaced God's people's need for the mercy of God. That is the error of the Pharisees. The heart of the Judeo-Christian faith is the need of the sinner for the mercy of God. And the Pharisees had found a way around the mercy of God by building up this structure of regulations that you could follow and look at that. We don't need God's mercy. We need to simply feel sorry for those who need God's mercy. The posture of the faithful throughout the Old Testament is, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. The problem is that if you think you no longer need the mercy of God, there's only one thing this leads to. Judgmentalism for all who fail to live up to the standard. So if you consider for a moment and zoom to the present about the world in which we live and the digestive information that we take in, is this not the kind of thing that is modeled for us? We are surrounded by teachers saying, here's the seven steps to success. Here's all of the things that you can do in order to build yourself up, in order to find the way to human flourishing, in order to, to, to find success, to shield yourself from those things that you don't want and have the life you really want. And what it looks like is taking stances on things for this, against that, for this person, against that person, it's us versus them, like I was speaking about a moment ago. And now a few decades into the internet and the way that is changing society, the trajectory of judgmentalism is going up at a very steep rate. Even among Christians, this is true. For example, you may, be, you may have watched uh, the Super Bowl last week. There's a, a, a dialogue happening currently about commercials that appear to the Super Bowl, the He Gets Us commercials. You may be familiar with those ads. If you watched the Super Bowl, if you didn't, they've been on YouTube and other places. Um, but there's a debate among Christians um, about why, why are we spending so much money on just this commercial media effort when we could use all of this money to feed the poor. And the reason I point that out, that's just one kind of one example, not, I'm not going to, not to make a stance on whether or not I would do those commercials if I had that money. But what we see though, is that we see a whole lot of people in the world today, a, lot, a whole lot of Christians deciding that it's their job to go and judge that as right or wrong. If we think about the digest that we're getting from the models that we're looking to, the media that we're consuming, um, it looks as though, it seems as though we are growing into a kind of culture, a kind of people who are constantly looking around for someone to criticize or for someone to judge. Simon takes one look at this woman and thinks, I wouldn't let her close to me. And when he sees her touching Jesus in a prolonged fashion and Jesus doing nothing about it, this is too much for him. He judges Jesus too, verse 39. Simon says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. The emphasis here is on Simon's hostility to and distance from this woman who's a sinner. He's a religious leader, one of the ones who was supposed to point people to the grace of God and instead he keeps her at a distance. He keeps her away from the antidote to her suffering. He keeps her away from the presence, from the teaching of God and his mercy. And this is the second thing we see. If the antidote to suffering is the presence of God, a key accelerant of suffering is judgmentalism, which pushes away rather than drawing near. 
As we move on though, Simon's response also shows us something else, which brings us to the key question, I think, in this passage. Indeed, the key question in the whole gospel of Luke. And that's this, who is Jesus? Simon the Pharisee, uh, Simon, excuse me, Simon is a Pharisee, but one of the things to notice about this story is that it's a bit different than some of the other engagements that Jesus has with Pharisees. Usually, Jesus engages with Pharisees many times, and usually those engagements are marked by hostility. In this passage, noticeably absence is hostility. They're cordial with one another. Um, Simon is almost portrayed as curious about Jesus. He's invited him into his home. He's watching and evaluating him. He's curious to see what Jesus is going to say and do. When Jesus doesn't do what Simon is expecting, Simon doesn't rebuke Jesus aloud as other Pharisees do. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? He just says it to himself. He thinks to himself in his own mind. And we can see the question he's wrestling with, is this man a prophet? Is this a man who's sent from God? Is Jesus who he says he is? And when he sees Jesus with the sinner failing to avoid contact with her, he sees, he thinks this man can't be a prophet. Otherwise he would have known that what he's allowing to happen is wrong. And in this, Simon makes two mistaken assumptions. First, he assumes that no true prophet would allow a sinful woman near him. Second, he assumes that because of this, Jesus must not know that she was a sinful woman. Jesus, of course, proceeds to immediately disabuse him of these assumptions. Verse 40, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Have you ever been, someone, have you ever been thinking about something? Or excuse me, have you ever been with someone thinking something about them and decided I am not gonna say that out loud? Only to have them look at you and say, what are you thinking? Or worse, perhaps, hey, I got something for you. There are several places Jesus answers the thoughts of those around him with those things being said out uh, uh, aloud. So, uh, excuse me, there's, there's several places that Jesus does this where someone is thinking something and, it, and we're told in the passage that Jesus answers them without them having said it aloud. Jesus answers anyway. You can almost hear Simon saying, shoot. And here Jesus tells a parable. Jesus answering says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they couldn't pay, or excuse me, when they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. And now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. But then Jesus continues, verse 44, saying to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with precious ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And then he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. There's a lot in this. The first thing that we see in this parable and its explanation is that Simon is wrong. This would have been the first thing Simon would have noticed. Jesus is a true prophet. He knows Simon's thoughts and he knows that this woman is a sinner. But here's the thing. 
rather than taking his knowledge of the woman's sin and using Simon the Pharisee as a model for an object lesson for the sinful woman, Jesus flips it on its head. He turns to Simon and uses this sinful woman as a model for an object lesson for the Pharisee. Looking at the parable, we have a banker, a money lender uh, who has two debtors uh, who owe different amounts. A denarii is about a day's wage for a laborer, uh, an average laborer, but the exact amount is not actually important. The, what, it, what should be understood, it's probably best to see this as a comparison between two things. This is about equivalent to the difference between being forgiven the debt of a car payment, a car loan, and a mortgage. So the, these, these dollar amounts translate a little bit today to are you being forgiven for a car note or a mortgage? Uh, they're both relatively large amounts, but one is far bigger than the other. The surprising, the surprising part of the parable is the forgiveness of the debt. Right, so each of Jesus' parables has something that catches the ears of his hearers. And that surprise in this parable begins with the fact that this moneylender chooses to forgive the debt. This would have been utterly uncharacteristic of a banker at any time. Uh, and to someone who has no money to pay it off, as Jesus indicates is the situation with these two debtors, this would have been quite a relief. And this is the key idea. It's the unmerited character of the act that is the basis for gratitude. These two debtors didn't pay off their debts. Their debts were forgiven by grace, not through the merit of having paid for it themselves. And Jesus gives us the message. He interprets the parable for Simon each element of the parable has a parallel. The debt is sin. The lender is God. The two debtors are different levels of sinner. The key idea is that God is ready and willing to forgive the debts. This is precisely what Jesus has come to do. And so to the implicit question in Simon's mind of why Jesus is accepting this woman's devotion. Because so Simon realizes very quickly when Jesus starts talking, oh, he knows that this woman is a sinner. The follow-up question, well, why, if he's a prophet, is he associating with this woman? So the answer to this question is this. Jesus answers, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. This is why Jesus is accepting of those in dire need of forgiveness. This is why Jesus is drawing near to sinners, because Jesus has come to forgive sin. And what's remarkable here. Another thing I should say that's remarkable here is that Jesus tells the Pharisee the lesson of the parable. If you're familiar with the ministry of Jesus, like I said a moment ago, a lot of the engagements with the Pharisees are marked by hostility. And thinking about the parables, Jesus usually only interprets the parables for his disciples. These parables, the meaning of the parables are for his disciples alone. But here Jesus explains the parable to a Pharisee. He looks at Simon and says, this is for you. Do you see this woman, Simon? He ends his explanation with, therefore I tell you, Simon. Verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. You see what Jesus is saying here. She knows the gravity of her need and the generosity of the offer of God's mercy. And as a result, she responds with love. Simon, on the other hand, doesn't know the gravity of his sin and his need for the generosity of God. As a result, he doesn't respond to Jesus with love. Both Simon's and the woman's standing before God, therefore, is revealed in their responses to Jesus. The woman loves Jesus. 
Simon does not. For some important context, listen to verses 29 and 30 of Luke 7, just before this passage. Luke includes in the middle of something that Jesus says, he includes this kind of parenthetical statement, saying, when all the people heard what Jesus was saying and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So just before this passage, Luke has explained to Theophilus who he's writing this gospel of Luke for. He's saying, by the way, the Pharisees have rejected the purpose of God for themselves in receiving the baptism of forgiveness of sins. Here we see a prime example of this rejection. Jesus came to forgive and Simon is utterly disinterested. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed me with special ointment. Simon wasn't necessarily being rude in neglecting these things. Um, These wouldn't have been expected for the host to do. But what is clear is that he certainly did not go out of his way to show hospitality to Jesus. In no way has Simon showed any affection for Jesus, whereas the woman demonstrated costly provision, profuse welcome, sacrificial worship. On account of these things, Jesus looks at Simon and essentially says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, while yours, Simon, are not. The point here is this. It's not that the woman had somehow earned her forgiveness by doing these things to worship Jesus. Rather, the point is that her attitude, as revealed in her loving Jesus much, was evidence that she had been forgiven much. Look at verse 47 again. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Jesus isn't saying, therefore, as a way of saying, because she did these things, therefore her sins are forgiven. Instead, this is like Jesus saying, on account of these things, I can tell you that she has been forgiven. Um, Not because she loved much, but as evidenced by the fact that she loved much. Remember the idea of the parable is that love in the parable is the result of the forgiven debt, not the cause of the forgiven debt. Jesus doesn't say on account of the love that these debtors had for the moneylender, he then forgave their debt. No, he forgave it and then the response was love. As 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us, not the other way around. This woman's love for Jesus evidently comes from the fact that she had already received the mercy and love of God. We're not told how this woman experienced it. Could have been in the moment, like I said a moment ago, it could have been in the moment where she broke down at that dinner table face to face with Jesus. Could have been something that he said there. Could have been something he said before. We don't know when or how she experienced the forgiveness of God, but we do know that she has because of her actions. She has courageously entered the house of Simon the Pharisee to draw near to Jesus and give him true love and honor and worship. It might be helpful to illustrate uh, this way. The statement, it is raining because the windows are wet, doesn't mean that the moisture on the windows has caused the rain to fall. It is our way of knowing that it is raining. Similarly, when Jesus declares forgiveness, he's speaking a word of encouragement and affirmation of something that was already true. It was something that this woman undoubtedly needed to hear, as did all around her. 
But that doesn't mean that it, was, it wasn't true until the moment Jesus said it. Jesus is claiming the authority to declare and thereby extend the forgiveness of God, but he will not declare it where God has not already done work in the heart. Here, Jesus gives this woman the assurance that God sees her. God knows why she acted that way. It was on account of her faith. And that despite the, pro, despite the protest of the Pharisees, this is the woman you have been accepted. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. This is the point of this engagement. God's mercy has drawn near in the person of Jesus. He is the one who has been sent to proclaim liberty to the captives, salvation to the sinner. Salvation is in Christ through faith alone and not through any kind of works. Jesus says, your faith has saved you, not your acts of demonstration of love, which are an outworking of her faith. What is faith? Faith is a relationship of trust for this woman. Her faith is the fact that she has surrendered herself to God and trusted in him rather than herself. And this is what Jesus is saying to Simon. You seem to think, Simon, that you have little need for forgiveness. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God so that you can be exalted. In this way, while Jesus is clearly rebuking Simon, you can almost hear him pleading with Simon. Look at her, Simon. Do you see this woman? Wake up. The irony is front and center. Here is a man who would have been expected to have the fast track and inside track to the forgiveness and mercy of God. But on the other hand, the outcast a woman who was a sinner and despised by religious leaders such as Simon found forgiveness while Simon the Pharisee was left outside. The last to become first and the first last, which brings us to the third thing, the blessing of suffering. You see the contrast between Simon and this woman. The woman's sin is right here. Her relationship, her, her reputation, excuse me, precedes her. She's constantly aware of her lack of belonging on account of her sin. Her life is marked by difficulty and suffering. By contrast, Simon's life experience is quite different. He spent his life seeking to avoid sin, and this is his reputation. He's well thought of because of it. He's accepted by society. His life is marked by ease and acclaim. And there are two things that I want to point out about this. First, one of the details in the parable points to something important. Simon the Pharisee is the one who is the smaller debtor. He owes a smaller amount of debt. This means that Jesus is acknowledging that Simon has committed less sins than this woman. There's a lot there. We can talk about afterwards, but here's the point. The problem is that Simon thinks that because he's committed less sins, he is thereby accepted by God. The problem with that is that the Bible is clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All need God's forgiveness. Why is it that those who are more acutely aware of their sin have some of the most radical transformation narratives? Because there's no pretense. I've got nothing to offer God. All I can bring is my need and appeal to you for mercy. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, but your sins, which are little, have yet to be addressed, friend. 
if you think you need little help, then you think you have little need for forgiveness. And this is a huge issue because on account of this, the woman is much closer to God's grace than Simon is. So the question for us this morning is this, do we see ourselves as those who have sinned little or do we see ourselves as those who have sinned much? Do you love much? Do you love him much? If not, perhaps do you know the forgiveness that is found in Jesus? That's the first thing. The second thing I wanna point out is this. If you look at Simon and the woman, a life marked by ease versus a life marked by difficulty, I would argue that for most of us in this room, we probably sound by that description a lot more like Simon than like this woman. It's often been observed that the most critical people are those who are the most well off. Um, I remember years ago listening to a Nigerian economist talk. This is at the time of the Paris Climate Accords. I'm not making a comment about environmental science, but this comment was something that stuck with me over these years, probably five or six years ago. I was listening to a Nigerian economist talk about the Climate Accords, about how all of these governments are trying to ask every country around the world to reduce their climate emissions for the sake of the environment. And the Nigerian man kind of made the observation. He said, it's convenient for America to be asking the rest of us to do this when they did all of their stuff a hundred years ago and have gotten rich because of it while the rest of us who are simply trying to feed our families have, no, have nothing else to do. The point that he was making in this, I don't know that I've captured that in summary very well, but the point that he was making was that you're, when you sit and you're rich and you have all that you need, it's easy for you to look down on others for doing bad things but we're not, we're just trying to feed our families. The blessing of suffering, moving away from the environmental example, the blessing of suffering is that it squeezes you to the point where all you have room for is what's most important. All this woman has room for in her life is what's most important. For us, so much of our lives are characterized by avoiding suffering, by running from it by avoiding things like shame and sadness. We spend our lives putting pads around ourselves to avoid things that make us uncomfortable. When we look at this woman, however, while we certainly shouldn't go and try to seek out suffering through sin or through some other means, we do get a window into the blessing that suffering can be for us. As David writes in Psalm 23, it's in the valley of the shadow of death that I know that you're with me. It is in that valley, in the presence of his enemies, that God prepares a table for him. We've gotten so good at avoiding suffering, and through this, I'm concerned that we've gotten really good at avoiding situations that throw, upon, throw us upon the mercy of God, like this woman. We've gotten really good at living into the life of Simon the Pharisee, shielding ourselves from things that highlight our need in pursuit of comfort and self-sufficiency. So into our hearts, I think it's important for us to hear the words of Jesus. Do you see this woman, Simon? Do you see this woman, Sojourn? This is who Jesus is calling us to reach. This woman, are you drawing near to her, to sinners and sufferers like her, 
Or are you judging them out of your life? If so, perhaps the follow-up question is the one that Jesus points to there at the end. Do you see this woman? Do you see that you are indeed like her? That you too need the mercy and grace of God. The truth is, until you still see yourself as just like this woman, you will not run to God for mercy. And if you haven't run to God for mercy, then you will be utterly unable to be an agent extending God's mercy and love to those around you. So those are the three things that we see in this passage. First, we've seen the antidote to suffering that Jesus presents to us is the presence of God drawing near to sinners. We've seen the way to accelerate the suffering of those around us, and that's by judging them away from ourselves, by pushing them away, by removing from them, pushing them, keeping them away from the presence of God. And then we've also seen the blessing of suffering, which reveals us, which squeezes us to the point that all we can do is cast ourselves upon the mercy of God. Are you someone who tries to do everything you can to avoid suffering? Stop running. I hope we see an invitation here to stop running, to be present right where we are, going through whatever it is that we're going through. Not thinking about how awesome things might be when we're able to conquer, but thinking about how wonderful it is that we're with God and we're with others who are suffering. Is suffering in your life seen as an obstacle that you have to get through before you can be helpful to others? Or is suffering the very classroom in which God is teaching you what it looks like to depend on him and to love others well? After all, being present to suffering above all unites us with the one who suffered for our sake so that through suffering we might be led to glory. So sojourn, might we know the love and peace that comes through being squeezed and cast upon the mercy of God so that we can then extend that mercy to others. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful passage, this beautiful picture of your love for us revealed to us in Christ for our sake. Please, Lord, help us this morning by your spirit to locate ourselves in this story in a way that is wise, in a way that points us to your mercy. Are we like Simon the Pharisee, living lives of judgmentalism? Are we like this woman who is acutely aware of our need and overwhelmed with gratitude and love at the mercy that you have offered us? Are we like the one who has received this mercy, who is able to demonstrate, who's able to forgive debts to all those around us the way that you have forgiven us our debts? Lord, help us to see in this the blessing that it is to be present with you in the real world, that we don't need to run from suffering, that instead of running from suffering, the invitation is for us to lean into suffering and experience your grace and mercy through it so that we might then be able to be agents of grace and mercy to those around us. Help us, we ask, to see you, to receive your love, so that we might demonstrate that love to all those around. For our good, for the good of our neighbors, and for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.